And as I was looking over this passage this week, my mind went back to remember that Handel's Messiah actually quotes heavy from Isaiah 40 uh, as it prepares to tell the story of the coming of Jesus. And so that's a little homework assignment for the kids and for you as well, is to find uh, a video version or if you've got an audio version of Handel's Messiah and maybe listen to that. But what it did is it made me think, hmm, maybe this morning I should read Isaiah 40 from the King James Version from which Handel's Messiah was, was written and sung. And so that's what I'll be doing, is actually using my King James Version to read those first eight verses. And if you break out in a song, it's okay, I won't mind. <laughs> Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken." The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth because the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And how fitting that Isaiah 40 verses 6 and 8 will be quoted in 1 Peter chapter, two, uh, chapter 1. And so now let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 22. For you who are visiting, we're doing a series through First and Second Peter, memories, manners, and mandates for God's minority people. So we're just picking up right where we left off. For those of you who've been here through this part of the series, try to remember a few of the things from verses 1 through 21. It will help to actually... Uh, guide us through these verses here. So, 1 Peter 1, beginning of verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God for, Isaiah 46 and 8, All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and to prepare the way for our salvation. Give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins that having been born again by your living and abiding word, we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you have probably guessed, 
I like woodworking. I bet you didn't know that, did you? Right? I like woodworking. Uh, it's one of my pleasures is to repurpose wood. For example, a year and a half ago, Alan decides to go trim up the pear trees out here, which was great. I'm so glad he did. It really made them look nice. That was a year and a half ago. But I just hated seeing that whole pile of limbs, and there was a large pile. I just hated seeing all of it getting hauled away. And so I went out there and grabbed several of those sticks, which have been since turned into canes and walking sticks. I've also taken tool handles. This is just a hoe handle. Taken tool handles and other pieces of old furniture, cleaned them up and carved them and put them to a whole new use. Well, keep that image in mind as we look at this passage in 1 Peter 1, 22 through chapter 2, verse 3, where we will find that God has made us his recusant people. I will define that word in a minute. He has made us his recusants by having reconfigured us and recast us into a new way. So, verse 22, recusant. What in the world does recusant mean? Well, it's just in the dictionary, but here's what the dictionary says. Quote, a recusant is a person who refuses to submit to an authority or to comply with a regulation. That's the definition. So, notice that Peter is addressing people whom... Who, God, uh, who call upon God. Now here I'm going to rephrase verses 17 through 19 for a moment. He is addressing people who call on God as Father, who know that the Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds, and who therefore conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of their exile. And the reason why is because they know that they have been ransomed from the futile ways that they inherited from their forefathers ransomed, not with perishable things like silver and gold and IRAs and CDs and bonds, but with the precious blood of Christ. Ransomed, bought from the slave block, bought from their hostage situation, ransomed with the imperishable blood, the precious blood of Christ like the lamb without a blemish or spot. Because of that, It has made us a different people. And so ransomed, adopted, and liberated, they have been made God's minority people who do not act and do not react like the majority culture demands them with authority to do. And so there it is in verse 22. This God-made recusancy, this God-engraced refusal Refusal to submit to the authority of a majority culture. This repudiation, verse 14, this repudiation of the passions of your former ignorance. Your former ignorance. This rebuttal, verse 18, this rebuttal to the futile ways that you learned from your forebears. That's the recusancy. And so Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Because you and I have been ransomed from out of our former bondage by the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb, verse 19. That's how he begins, right? Past tense. Having purified your souls. Not, 
getting yourself generated up to try to do something to make yourself clean. No, having already had your souls purified, because I just talked about the ransoming blood of Jesus. So because of the fact that we've been set free from the bondage by the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. And because, go back to verse 3 and following, because of the great mercy of the Father who has caused us who has caused us to be born again. You have therefore been brought into the living hope and lively inheritance, verses 4 and 5. And because you are the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge, the forecherishing, the foreloving of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, you are now for obedience to Jesus the Messiah. And you are for the ongoing redemptive sprinkling with his blood. That was verses 1 and 2. Notice that he ended verses 1 and 2 with this for language, which he also ends up here with in verse 22. You are for obedience to Jesus and the sprinkling of the blood of the Lamb. You are for brotherly love. There it is. Verse 22, you are for a sincere brotherly love. After all that God has done for us, of course, we're for a brotherly love. What does that mean? Well, just simply, you are for, you are for sharing with one another the same generosity, the same graciousness, the same forgiveness, the same hospitality that you have undeservedly received from the Father through the Son and applied by the Spirit. You are just as ready to be lavished upon, right? So now you turn around and the Father is lavished upon you and you are willing to lavish to each other. You are for sincere brotherly love. Instead of like, majority culture around us, instead of being a pugnacious people, punchy, and pounding, demeaning, demanding, we are the gracious, charitable, warm-hearted people of God. Now look, in our social setting, it's just too easy to not really engage in loving one another. Right? It's just too easy. We live in a world, we live in a society, it's very normal, it's very human, where we like our own kind and we hang out with our own kind. And that's not to go on in here. Amongst God's people, that's the point of verse 22. That's not to go on here. But it's just too easy. You've heard me tell this story, so I'm going to get to tell it again. I'm at 60, so I get to tell these stories over and over and over again, because... After the services are over with, almost always there's people hanging out in here, right? Talking and gabbing with one another and encouraging one another. And I usually stand out in the, in the foyer, the nardex out there. Inevitably, somebody will come to me and say, as they're looking with me at the sanctuary where everybody's still talking, I bet you wish these people would go home so you'd go home. And what do I always say? Those of you who heard me say this, what do I always say? I love it. Because of my first church, they hated each other. They were the Hatfields and the McCoys. They were the Bloods and the Crips. 
They could not stand to be in the same building. So when church was over, it was a ghost town. Within five minutes, half of them were packing and they showed me their weapons. It was all that wonderful stuff. And I'm not afraid of guns. But anyways, it was just a crazy world. The only time they ever stayed together, guess what? Was on Christmas Eve, you know, when you're supposed to be spreading good cheer and great joy, right? And then they talked like they'd never seen each other all year long. They did not like each other. And Peter says, no, look, you're unlikable. And God the Father, by His great mercy, has rescued you and made you His own. He's cleaned you up and He has put you in His camp. You're His. He lavishes upon you. So now lavish this love with those amongst the fellowship, even those whom you aren't like. Cross the aisles, get together, hang out together. Show the same love to one another that the Father has shown to you. In Jesus Christ, by the Spirit. That's the recusancy. In an age like ours right now, that's highly politicized and polarized, you need to hear this. This is the rebellion. We will not be divided by political party. We will not be divided by by social categories. We will walk in this new love that God has shown to us. And we'll do it together. That's Peter's point. I just got excited, sorry. I wasn't preaching at anybody. I just got excited. But that's the point. We are called to be God's recusant people. And there it is. And that's how he ends that verse. We're to pursue this course earnestly from a pure heart. But Peter's not done. For you see, being made God's recusants is because you have been reconfigured by God's lavish goodness. And that's verses 23 through 25. Now notice what's the first word in the English Standard Version. What's the first word of verse 23? It's a five-letter word. Since. That's a huge word. It's a big word. It's a... For this reason. All that I just said in verse 22, for this reason kind of word. It's a, you can do verse 22 because of what has been done to you, verses 23 through 25 kind of word. Since, thus, since you have been born again. Pursue this course since you have been born again. Well, how did this happen to us? How did we get born again? Well, we talked about this a little bit when we looked at verse 3, but Peter goes into a little bit different direction here. And I want you to notice in the rest of verse 23, we were born again, not through the normal procreative process, right? Not by perishable seed. I'm going to get embarrassed, so I'm going to try to code this a little bit, all right? But not by perishable seed. Instead, we were born again through divine procreation by the imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. We were, this divine procreation came by the imperishable seed that came through the living and abiding Word of God. Notice that it's a living and abiding Word. And the reason why it's a living, abiding Word is because it's the Word of the living, abiding God. It's a living, abiding word because it's the word of the living, abiding God. And so, it's a creative declaration. 
you should be thinking immediately of what passage, what place in the, in the Old Testament. Procreative or creative declaration, anyone? Genesis 1, anyone? Right, what does God do? God said. And what happens next? It was so, and it was good. God said. It, is, it, was, it was so, and it was good. God's creative declaration. It's a living, abiding word. It's, 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 the, it's proclaimed and spoken that causes this divine procreation. And so Peter goes on then in verses 24 and 25 to quote Isaiah 40. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then Peter says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. And that last sentence takes us back to chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Two weeks ago, we looked at that verse, those verses. And there we were told that the prophets, and it doesn't mean the 12 prophets, the minor and major prophets. I told you all the reasons why it meant far bigger than that. That the prophets announced the grace that was to be yours as they spoke of the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit, things into which angels long to look. Notice that God's pro, uh, creative, His procreative word, brings us then, newborn, into His old, old story, making us newborn part of the ancient biblical heritage. Two thoughts before we move on, out of many, but two thoughts. First off, dear friends, if this is the case, then how important ought we to regard the Word of God? If it's God's procreative Word that brings us to new life, and it, it, it doesn't fade away, it's a living, abiding Word, then how important ought we to regard the Word of God. In our day-by-day, day-in-and-day-out lives, reading it may be in devotions and family worship, drinking it in, imbibing in it, dwelling in it. How important ought it to be in our lives? How important ought it to be in our churches? It's one of the reasons that the liturgy here at Heritage, I'm not going to say anything about anybody else, but the liturgy at Heritage is just saturated with Scripture. That was intentional. Because why? Because it's a living, abiding Word. Why? Because by it, God recreates us newborn into His family, into His kingdom. Oh, how important ought the Word of God to be for us individually in families and churches. But secondly... My friends, it is just, again, just too easy for us to get everything out of kilter. Especially with all of our yearning for achievements and advancement. Now look, Peter is concerned, yes, about manners and mandates for God's minority people. That's verse 22, and it'll come back again in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Peter is concerned about manners and mandates for God's minority people. But notice that those manners and mandates 
do not stand alone as achievable accomplishments by self-sufficient, self-actualizing men and women. Instead, what does Peter do? Peter continues to wrap up and to corral all of the manners and mandates with the doggedly repeated memories of God's mercy, verse 3. Of God's causing us to be born again to a living hope, verse 3. Of God's preserving us for our lively inheritance, verse 4 and 5. Of God's ransoming us, verse 17, 18, and 19. Of God procreating us, verses 23 through 25. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? No? Let me go at it again. Peter does not say, do this. He says, God did this so you can go do that. All the way through chapter 1. Now do you get it? And here it is again, verses 23 through 25. God has done this so we can go be that. Okay, good, we got it. Therefore, this lavish goodness of God reconfigures us. And the living, abiding word of God is one major way that he does so, which then makes us his minority people. It makes us his recusants who march to a different drumbeat, verse 22. That's why Peter goes on to point out that by our being reconfigured, we have been recast, verses 1 through 3. Recast. You know, just like taking an old car spring, putting it through the forge, and then hammering it out on the anvil and making it into a knife, which one of you did this a couple weeks ago. It was great to see that picture. Or by taking a wooden tool handle and repurposing it into a cane with carvings and all the other things, or taking tree limbs and repurposing them for the good of others and the benefit of others. Peter says that we have been recast. By divine procreation, we have been made a people who function and interact differently. Now look, much of what fuels many of our social interactions, our civil governments, our marriages, our media, our academics, and our advertisements, to name only six, are listed right here in chapter 2, verse 1. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Malice, willing and wishing bad things to happen to others and looking it up and trying to cook up bad things for others. Deceit, lying and conniving, hypocrisy, play acting, envy, so jealous of others' stuff that you want it and you don't want them to have it and you'll do what it takes to get it away from them. Slander, destroying another person's character. Those things fuel many of our social interactions, civil governments, marriages, media, academics and advertisements. And that's the majority mindset. If you don't believe me, just go check out social media. Just go watch MSNBC and Fox. Just go do it. You can't miss it if you've got the Bible as your grid. Right? And so, that's the majority mindset. But because of God's good procreation that liberates us, from these futile ways and passions of our former ignorance. We can put, and we are to put them away. That's how verse 1 begins. So, put away. 
because of what God has done to you and for you and in you, verses 23 through 25, verse 1, so put away the things that fuel the society around you. Rather than savoring, that's a good way to put it, rather than savoring malice, savoring deceit, savoring hypocrisy, savoring envy, savoring slander. I know it sells news, but instead of savoring it, Peter says we're to savor something else. Instead of being nurtured, nourished, and nursed by malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, we're to be nurtured, nourished, and nursed by the pure spiritual milk. In fact, he's pointing out here we're to be craving it like newborn babies crave their mother's milk. Being a father of four kids, I've had lots of illustrations of that at two in the morning. Right? That's craving. Four in the morning. Then again at six in the morning. Right? All that. You've seen it. And if you haven't, you did it. Craving. Wanting it. Crying for it. Longing for it. And Peter says, for as we do this, then we are growing up. You will grow up into salvation. Now, some will hear that growing up into salvation and think, well, that means we've got to save ourselves. But for those of you who endured last Sunday evening's marathon sermon, it's okay, you can laugh at it. You know what that grow-up language is. We talked about it last week. It's the thankful way of sanctification. It's the maturing language. To grow up in salvation means you've already been given this salvation. Now just grow mature in it, is what Peter is saying. Peter wants to raise Christian adults, not Christian babies. But what is this pure spiritual milk that we're to be craving? Well, it could be the Word of God, as some of the older translations put it, because of one of the Greek words in here that's translated spiritual. It's logikon, and so it could be the pure milk of the Word, and that would fit the end of chapter 1. But it even more has to do with verse 3. Craving the pure spiritual milk, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's an interesting statement. Now, honestly, the living, abiding word does emphasize the goodness of the Lord over and over and over again, story after story, page after page. Therefore, the scriptures are really a good place to begin. But also, there is a lived sense that Peter is driving at here, of tasting that the Lord is good. It's almost a picture of God the Father acting like a mother, nursing. The children tasted that their mother was good. Here you are, have you tasted that the Lord is good? Growing up there in His bosom. Tasting that the Lord is good. Well, how do you taste that the Lord is good? My friends, I think simply it's just the memory, recalling, The memory of all the good God the Father has already lavished on you. This is a little personal, but when we pay bills, I do it the old school way. I have an accounting book and and we do paper bills and all those things. So, You millennials, don't, don't hate me, all right? But I love doing the bills at the end of the month. I know I'm sick, but I love doing the bills at the end of the month. 
Because most of our adult married life, we were not really well off. And we were scared. And over the last several years, it's been such a delight to pay the bills and to realize, okay, we're not scared anymore. And what we will do often is on that day at dinner is simply say, Lord, we remember what it was like to be poor. And you have been so good to us. Hallelujah. It's remembering the memory of how God has been lavishly good to you already. It's also how remembering how God is lavishing on you His goodness even now. And also how He will one day unceasingly, unstoppably lavish goodness on you when Jesus returns. It's here, my friends, as you revel in the goodness of the Lord and relish the goodness of the Lord that we grow up in salvation, nurtured and nourished. When we savor the malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander that our majority society sucks on day and night, when we treasure the moments of evil or badness that we have experienced, that's all we can think about, it's all we can talk about, it's all we live with. Those things define us. They define who we are. They define where we are headed. Ah, but when we revel in the goodness of the Lord, despite the grief and the suffering, despite the grief and the suffering, it's there we grow up in salvation healthier and more wholesome. And Peter is going to have a bunch of things to say about this in the rest of this letter. And so my friends, let me try to land this plane, okay? We're, we're coming in for landing. But you have to ask, how does this passage impact our perspective on Advent? And I'm glad you asked if you're asking that. Your friends, Advent is that annual reminder where we recall. We recall, yes, the first and the final coming of our Lord Jesus and the promise of how God is remaking all things and righting all wrong. That's the point, really, of verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. He's already begun doing these things. It's the annual reminder that death, evil, drunkenness, ruptured families, addictions, crooked politics, violence, revolutions, malice, deceit, Hypocrisy, envy, and slander are not the way life is meant. Rather, Advent recalls to us that God's world rescue operation has broken out in the coming of His Son and it will fill out fully in the final coming of His Son and surprise, above all surprises, He has made us a part of His world rescue operation. Us! I mean, just go look at yourself in the mirror. Us. Wow. That's what Advent does. Advent brings us back around to God's gracious initiative and invasion 
through the womb of that virgin woman, that young virgin woman, by way of the crib and the barn, coming forth from that backwater town in nowhere Palestine, lifted high upon that splintery crossbeam, stepping out of that dark, dank tomb, body, blood, bones, toenails and hair, never again subject to misery or mortality, and now seated at the Father's right hand, reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what Advent reminds us of. And we ought to be shouting, Hallelujah! Thank you, God! Advent prompts us to remember that by God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that means something. It means He has made us His recusants. He's reconfigured us by his divine procreation and procreative work. And he has recast us. And it's all by grace alone. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we are so grateful that you have taken the likes of us and you have made us your own. And you didn't just make us your own. You've made us a new people, a new kind of people. We pray, Lord, that you would help us in the midst of this world that is fueled by malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Help us to remember that we are not that any longer. Those were the former ways of our passions. Those were the old ways that we had inherited from our forebearers. But you have made us a different people by your grace. And so this season, as we sing hymns and and carols, as we think about the coming of our Lord Jesus, may our hearts be filled with great joy. And may our lives and our marriages and our work and our interactions with people around us be a hymn of praise. May our lives and families and work be a carol of the coming of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.